The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. My name is Chris Martin, and I've got to start with an apology. If you've come to class hoping to hear an in-person Bible study lesson, uh, if you're a visitor, come into a class for our, or come into our class for the first time. If you're a member coming back from a prior visit or uh, here hoping to hear live teaching, I apologize. I cannot be there this morning. I had some work issues that required me to be in Dallas on uh, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday, and it just made it impossible for me to get back and forth. So I appreciate your patience with me. I realize there sometimes can be a slight lag between the audio and the video, and I apologize for that. We're doing the best we can uh, in this uh, unique virus situation we're dealing with and uh, with my personal work situation, so I appreciate your patience. But I'm glad you're here because we've got a great lesson, because we're studying the Gospel of John. We've been in it for a couple of weeks now, and we're looking this morning at the question of the importance of John the Baptist, or sometimes I call him John the Baptizer. Uh, a lot of times uh, the name Baptist people associate with our uh, Protestant denomination, uh, and he's not the first of our Protestant denomination. He's just a baptizer, but all of humanities call him John the Baptist. So uh, I'll probably refer to him like that. Or if I use a shorthand, I'll say the baptizer, and you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, it's a great study, and I've titled today's lesson, The Importance of John the Baptist. And I tackled this lesson with a little bit of... Um, tenderness because I realized that so many people know who he is, could tell me what he did, could tell me things about him. And so my challenge this morning is to tell you something you don't know about him or tell you something that you don't know about why he is so important in scripture. Why in the gospel of John, after everything John has taught us about who the Logos is, who Jesus is, and 100% God, 100% man, life, light, uh, everything we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. It, it raises some questions about why then digress and suddenly start talking about John the baptizer. I don't, don't get it. If you're wondering what the connect is, stay with us. By the end of the lesson, it'll be crystal clear, and I think you'll understand exactly why John the gospel writer talked about his fellow believer brother, John the baptizer, and you'll see how it all fits together. It's a great study. Remember the purpose of the Gospel of John. Uh, as we looked at from chapter 20, it's to answer the question to believe and to persuade who Jesus Christ is. He's the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. We see that also played out in introductory form in the first chapter. We've seen that now in three different lessons on the things I just mentioned a minute ago. So our purpose of John is to answer that question of who's Jesus Christ, and that's exactly why John the Baptist is covered, because he helps us get a different perspective on that question. He deepens it a little bit. He broadens it a little bit. And I'll explain exactly what I mean. 
Now, a lot of people, when they tackle the topic of who is John the Baptist, simply do a character study. They look at the question of his humility and do a character study on how we all ought to be humble. Uh, they'll take a look at his single-minded missionness and talk about how we ought to be single-minded mission-oriented. Uh, they'll look at other aspects of his character in terms of his simplicity, his lack of worldlyism, all these different character traits that we can draw from him and his message and his ministry, and none of those things are bad. Those are great things to study about John the Baptist, but that's not why the Apostle John included him in his gospel. To understand why John talks about John the Baptist, John the Apostle talks about John the Baptist, we got to go back a little bit. I got to teach you some stuff from the last book in the Old Testament, because the last book in the Old Testament gives us an introductory framework into which the culture in which John the Baptist and John the Apostle were born, and it gives us some insight into what's going on. In the last book of the Hebrew Bible, God gives a very clear message to the yearning that the Jewish people had for the Messiah. And he says, you're going to know the Messiah is there when one big thing happens. He says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way for me. Then the Lord, or we could say the Messiah you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, that's a messianic term, the messenger of the covenant you desire, see he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in Malachi chapter 3, he says, before you get the Messiah, the verification of who the Messiah is is going to be this forerunner, this messenger of who he's coming. He gets a little bit more detailed in Malachi verse 5, and he says, look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So from that point forward, for the next 400 years up until the age of Christ, they waited on a yearly basis for Elijah to the non-believing Jews of our day, of the 21st century. They still wait for Elijah to appear to precede the Messiah that they are still waiting for, not believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's why even today, if you ever go visit your Jewish friends and you're invited to join a Passover meal, the Passover cedar, today they leave an empty seat at every table. If you go into an apartment, if you go into a home, if you go into a synagogue to celebrate the, the, the Passover, there will always be an empty chair for Elijah. And they end every Passover by saying the famous phrase, maybe next year, because the chair is still empty, meaning to them Elijah hasn't come, and maybe next year Elijah will, Elijah will come and precede the coming of the Messiah that the Jewish people are still waiting for. It's significant that for the 400 years leading up to Jesus, they were still waiting for Elijah to come. They didn't know what it meant, they didn't know how it happened, but they thought this guy that they could read about in the Hebrew Bible was going to show up again and say the Messiah is coming, get ready. Now, in their worldview of the first century, uh, they were looking for a military leader. They were looking for somebody that's going to overthrow the Romans, but it was eager anticipation. Up until that point in time, there was a very uh, significant problem of people showing up pretending to be Elijah. 
saying, I'm Elijah reincarnated, or I'm Elijah come back from heaven, the Messiah is coming. That was very easily disproven. Even up until the time of Jesus, they had a very significant problem of people showing up claiming to be the Messiah, trying to get people to come around them and support some kind of political rebellion. That was all easily disproven. So at the time of John the Baptist, at the time of the Apostle John, at the time of Jesus' birth, there was this eager expectation for this messenger who they were expecting to see Elijah returning from heaven in order to proclaim the coming of their salvation and in their mind, the freeing of them from the Roman yoke of occupation. So John starts, the Apostle John, starts by describing the baptizer in verse 6. Now, I've jumped over this in prior lessons. We're going back because I told you when we discussed the first couple of uh, 14 verses in John that there was a parenthesis. He introduced John. He got into some other stuff about light and life and uh, the humanity of Jesus. And then he comes back to John. So this lesson, we're looking at the bookends. We're looking at the parentheses, starting in verse 6 skipping over what we've already looked at in verses 9 through 14 and then catching up on the end up through verse 34. But he starts in verse 6 through 8. He says, there was a man named John, John the baptizer, who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, the first thing you notice in the gospel of John is what he doesn't say about the baptizer. He doesn't talk about his miraculous birth. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit from the Synoptic Gospels as an illustration point. He doesn't talk about his ministry. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover that in great detail. He doesn't even really cover his message. We get some snippets that we don't see in the other Synoptic Gospels that John wants us to know about. He doesn't go into the depths of his message. He doesn't even cover what we consider to be the most significant, which is his baptism of Jesus. And if that prompts your mind to think, why did John the Baptist have to baptize Jesus? I taught a whole lesson on this back in the book of Matthew. Uh, let me know or let Butch know, and we can send you a copy of that old lesson on the book of Matthew. Uh, I answered that question in about 45 minutes, and it's a good lesson if you want to know, but uh, that's a different lesson for a different time. But John is not covering John the Baptist. Because one, the Synoptic Gospels already did in terms of his birth, ministry, message, and the baptism of Jesus. And because he's got another point. And you'll see that as the lesson develops. Now, he starts by pointing out that he was sent from God. And I highlight this because it is worthy of referencing the Synoptic Gospels here. Because he wasn't just a guy that stood up and said, I'm going to proclaim the Messiah. Everything about his life, everything about his ministry was a complete miracle. He was one of the most, if not the greatest men uh, who ever lived. Jesus himself said that. But it makes you wonder how all that happened. The only explanation is he was a miracle of God. He was sent from God. His birth story, you can read primarily in the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew and Mark also covered to some extent. We know his father was named Zachariah. His mother's named Elizabeth. They were much too old to have children. We don't know how old they were, but they were way beyond childbearing years. And they even tried to have a child during their childbearing years and failed to do so. So not only were they barren and infertile, they were beyond childbearing years, and God miraculously gives them a child. 
the angel Gabriel comes and tells Zechariah what's going to happen. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the messenger, the coming Messiah, just like Malachi told you about 400 years ago. And Zechariah disbelieved him. It says in the Gospel of Luke that he basically said, you got to be kidding. Who are you really? And the angel Gabriel, as punishment, binds his tongue, and he cannot communicate uh, for the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy up until John is born, and then he's able to speak again and can proclaim who his son is. So he's got a miraculous birth. We don't know anything about his younger childhood, but it looks like from the time he would have been 18 up until he was about 29 or 30, he went into a one-on-one -on -one seminary training program in the wilderness with God himself, very similar to what the Apostle Paul did for 10 years after his Damascus Road conversion. He never went to schooling. He never went to the equivalent of seminary. He never became a priest like his father which he could have done uh, since they were of the, uh, the Aaronic priesthood family line. Uh, it looks like he went out into the wilderness and did not cut his hair, did not cut his beard, uh, wore rough clothing, wore a rough leather belt to hold it all together, and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, that wasn't a fad diet. That's all he had access to. He didn't have a job. He didn't uh, rely on other people to give him money. He ate in the wild is what that reflects as God provided to him. So he's a miraculous man sent by God, given divine insight that was greater on who the Messiah is than any human being who had ever lived before him. Greater insight on the Messiah than Abraham, greater insight on the Messiah than Moses, greater insight on the Messiah than David or Jeremiah or Isaiah. Now, those guys had great insight, but John the Baptist was the first one that God put the pieces of the puzzle together. He could connect Yahweh of old with Jesus sent from God as 100% human, and could proclaim who he was. That's why Jesus said he's the greatest man who's ever lived so far. But as you'll see later on, he describes those who come after him and how they compare to John the Baptist based upon their knowledge of who Jesus is. That's coming up. He comments also in verse 7, he says, he came as a witness to testify about the light. Now, what I want to emphasize here is our little Greek word that we translate in English, testify or testify about, because what it means in Greek, in the original Greek language, uh, is that he means to uh, witness or he means to explain or tell forth. It's a legal term that means to verbally explain the truth. He came to testify or he came to witness about the light. Now, we got a great little life lesson here because what that means for John the Baptist is he was a speaker. He told people with his mouth who Jesus was. Life lesson for us is clearly we're supposed to do that but most of us don't do that. A whole bunch of people I've known in my Christian life think their way of Christian witnessing is simply the way they live their life. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't party, they don't go to Las Vegas, they don't hang out with people that do, you know, fill in the blank, however, you know, whatever jokes you want to make about it. It's all about lifestyle to them. And there's something to be said for lifestyle evangelism as planting the seed for the testimony you're going to give so that what you say is consistent with your life. But don't confuse 
pre-evangelism, which is what lifestyle living is, with actual witnessing and using your words to say who Jesus Christ is and what he means to you and what the Bible means to you. Pre-evangelism is your lifestyle that plants the seeds of the gospel. Uh, as my screen says, it's tilling the soil of your friends or family's mind and heart, wondering why you do what you do, why you don't do what you do. But the life lesson on being a witness is that's not enough. Your witness is not uh, disapproving of people that do what you don't do. It's not condemning people or trying to take things away from people so they don't do what you don't do. That's pre-evangelism. And in many ways, that can kill your evangelistic message. But John gives us a picture that evangelism is using our words, using our mouth to explain who Jesus is. It's not just a way of living. Great little life lesson. Now, he continues in verse 8, back to the Gospel of John. It says, he was not the light, he was not the Messiah, but he came to testify about the light. And that gives us a great point because so many people, when they get involved in ministry or using their spiritual gifts, it very quickly becomes an issue of ego. How many people can I have to this event? How many people can I have follow me? How many people can I have listen to me? How many people can I have do this or do that that I was involved in? And it quickly realizes that there is a disconnect between ego and evangelism. And so one of the things that I've learned as I've put up on the screen is that ego means that we think we are the doer while humility recognizes that God is the doer. And so our life lesson is that big ego and witnessing about Christ don't naturally coexist. Can you have someone with an insanely large ego witness about Jesus Christ? Sure, I can identify a whole bunch of pastors that fall into that category. Our pastor Greg does not. He's one of the most humble men I've ever met and worked with. Uh, and I'm at this church in part significantly because of his humility. But we've got to realize as we start to exercise more of our spiritual gifts, if we're not highlighting Jesus Christ and recognizing that God is the doer of salvation, of our salvation, of allowing us to do what we do, then it becomes about us and doesn't become about him. So another great little life lesson from John chapter 8. Now, we jump to John 15. Remember, these are parentheses, and we're trying to take a look at the things he's saying about John the Baptist. And it says in verse 15, John the Baptist testified concerning him, Jesus the light, and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Now, let me give you a factual point and let me give you a theological point. The factual point is as a human being, Jesus Christ was younger than John the Baptist. The Gospel of Luke gives us, as any good doctor would do, a great medical chronology. And Dr. Luke makes it crystal clear that Mary and Joseph did not conceive or did not have Jesus, did not discover that God had given them Jesus in the womb of Mary until six months after the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and Elizabeth, meaning that John the Baptist was six months earlier in birth than Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph in the stable in Bethlehem. So as a matter of chronology, Jesus came after John the Baptist. Why then does he say he is the one who's coming after me and he surpassed me because he existed before me? John's already given us the answer in the early verses of John chapter 1. 
that in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The preexistence of Jesus Christ that we talked about in our very first lesson in the Gospel of John. Now, the Apostle John knows this, writing 70 years, 60 years after this event takes place with uh, John the Baptist starting his ministry. But John the Baptist knows, before John the Apostle knows, before anybody else on the planet knows, the guy who I am witnessing about lived, existed before I was born. It's going back to that point that he would have learned from God in the desert in the decade before he started his baptism ministry about who the coming Messiah was. He is the preexistent God. And so when John the Baptist has a message that says, this guy has existed before me, his earthly audience would have heard that and said, okay, he's an older guy. If you really understood what he was saying, he was saying the guy that I'm the forerunner for, that I'm witnessing about, is God who has always preexisted. He's always preexisted me. So it's a great little insight on how deep John the Baptist's theology is. Uh, it continues, and it tells us in verse 19, this is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him. Now, let me set the, back, the background here before I jump further into this verse. We know from the Synoptic Gospels he's preaching and baptizing out in the eastern side of Jerusalem. So he's out in the desert. He's around the Jordan River. Sometimes he's in the Jordan River. Sometimes he's in places around the Jordan River. But he's basically in the desert where he's been living for the last decade. And the Synoptic Gospels tell us he has a huge following that large numbers of people come from Jerusalem and the other cities in Israel to hear him preach. It makes it clear that uh, he had huge numbers of people that were listening to him, that he was baptizing, that people, some thought he was the Messiah. He had a huge public following, and the religious leaders back in Jerusalem knew his daddy, but they didn't know him. And they're like, what is this boy doing? What is he saying? What is he preaching? We got to send some folks out there and find out what this boy is doing. So the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees, we learn later, send spies out to listen to his message and to cross-examine him, to interview him. And they say, who are you? He did not refuse to answer them. Verse 20 says, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. So their first question was whether he was the coming Messiah. He quickly says, nope, that's not me. We saw that in the prior verse as well. Verse 21, what then they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Now, the reason they ask him that question is exactly why I started this message showing you Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4, because for 400 years, they'd been asking on a yearly basis, is Elijah coming? Because if Elijah's coming, then the Messiah's coming in right after him. So when they say, are you the Messiah? Nope. Well, then are you the forerunner? Are you Elijah? Come and testify about him. And John's answer is, I am not. Now, there's a great little life lesson here because of what Jesus said and what Gabriel the angel said about who the John the Baptist was. Now, remember a minute ago I told you that uh, Zechariah, John's father, got his tongue muted for about six months until John was born because he didn't believe Gabriel. Gabriel told him who his son was going to be. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, Gabriel says, he, your son, John the Baptist, will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel Gabriel, before he's born, said he's going to be just like Elijah. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, when talking to the disciples, pauses and talks about John the Baptist. And he says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's the point I made earlier about he's the first guy that connects all the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why Jesus gives him such a huge compliment. Look down at verse 14, the very last verse that's bolded for you. Jesus himself said, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So Jesus himself connected Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 with this man, John the Baptist. Fast forward to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember when Jesus took Peter and John the Apostle, who's writing the gospel, and his brother James up on a mountain, and they see Moses, they see Elijah down from heaven standing on earth and radiating in their resurrection bodies, their heavenly bodies, standing on either side of their friend, their Lord, Jesus. And as soon as, they ste- as, soon as Jesus steps off the top of the mountain, as soon as Elijah and Moses disappear, the following dialogue takes place in Matthew chapter 17. The disciples, that's Peter, James, John, ask Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? In other words, they didn't understand Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. So he speaks in the future about Elijah returning to him with all the believers in his second coming. But he says in verse 12, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. Because at this point in John's, in Matthew 17, John the Baptist has already been executed. He's already had his head cut off by uh, Herod. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist. So in both Matthew 11 and Matthew 17, Jesus says, that guy, John the Baptist, that's who God was talking to Malachi about, was the forerunner coming to proclaim me, Jesus, as the Messiah. And so it raises a question because you'd say, wait a minute, why does John the Baptist, when asked if he's the forerunner, when asked if he's the messenger, when asked if he's Elijah, would say no. But then Gabriel the angel connects him with Elijah, and Jesus himself in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17 connects him to Elijah. Two answers. Number one, he wasn't Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnate. He's not Elijah come down from heaven uh, and pretending to have a new name, John the Baptist. He's a different guy. But he was like Elijah, and so Jesus says that's exactly why he was doing what he's doing. He was there to fulfill prophecy. But John the Baptist's humility would not allow himself to be connected to Elijah from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. There is a tremendous life lesson here for us, a wonderful life lesson here for us that God sees you differently then you see yourself. God sees me differently than I see myself. God sees John the Baptist differently than John the Baptist sees himself. So John the Baptist is so humble 
when asked if he is the forerunner, if he is the messenger of Malachi chapter 3, the one like Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, he says, nope, I'm just a voice in the wilderness crying out. I'll tell you what that means in a minute, but he says, I'm just here to proclaim my Messiah. Jesus, God, looks at him and says, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one I've blessed. He's the one I miraculously gave birth to. He's the one I miraculously taught theology for 10 years in the desert. He said, that's why he's the greatest man that ever lived. So it's a great truth that we, because of our lack of self-image, because of our insecurity, because of our lack of this or our lack of that, because of sin in our past life, because of terrible mistakes we've made, we typically have horrible images of ourselves. And this little lesson, this little sub-lesson on John the Baptist shows us that God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And it's a great little word of encouragement for us, and I hope you're encouraged by it. The questions continue. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. He says in verse 21, they ask him, are you the prophet? No, he answered. Now, what in the world is this talking about? To understand this question asked by the religious elites to John the Baptist, you got to know a little bit more Old Testament Bible. What he's saying here about the prophet goes back to a prophecy that Moses made in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we get the explanation of where this comes from in the prophet. Moses writes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. In other words, a speaker of God's truth who's a human being from amongst you. So he's going to be an, Isra uh, an Israelite. And it says, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him, for this is what you ask, you the Jews ask for your Lord, your God, at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. So verse 17, is, sorry, verse 16 is talking about when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai when they heard the voice of God, when they saw the fire come down and consume the golden calf that they made as an idol for worship, when they saw Yahweh, when they heard Yahweh, they said, we can't hear God anymore. We can't see that fire anymore because to see God means we die. Give us somebody else. And so the answer to that was, if you don't want to see Yahweh, then I will send you the Messiah. And he says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I'll put my words in his mouth. I will tell them everything I command him. So from Moses forward, for the next 1,800 years, from Moses to the point of Jesus, they were waiting, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Because they, they put together the idea of the prophet, the man the prophet, was going to be the Messiah. So they knew the Messiah was going to be a human being. They knew he was going to speak God's truth. They knew he was going to do a whole bunch of great things from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets. But Moses' promise from their antiquity was he's going to be a man just like Moses, and he's going to speak God's truth just like Moses. Now, we know who that prophet was. It wasn't John the Baptist. John the Baptist is 100% right here when he said, I'm not that prophet. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, preaches a sermon, and he ties Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus and says, that prophet you guys have been waiting for, that's Jesus Christ who you crucified. Stephen, giving the sermon before his execution in Acts chapter 7, preaches the exact same sermon. He references back to Deuteronomy 18 and says, that prophet you've been waiting for since Moses, you executed him in Jesus Christ. 
So in two different sermons from the Gospel of Acts, we're taught and shown who that prophet is. It's not John the Baptist, it's Jesus Christ himself. So John says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. So then they say in verse 22, who are you then? We got to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about himself? And John the Baptist says in verse 23, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now there's a great little lesson here on his humility, because I've told you multiple times he's a humble guy. We see it in a lot of different ways. This is a great one. In contrast to Jesus being the Logos, as we talked about in the first lesson, the force that created the universe and holds it all together, that gives it all rhyme and reason, it makes it all work. He says, I'm not the Logos, I'm one voice. And it doesn't even say he's a person, it just says, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. It's a great lesson on he's not trying to get a congregation, he's not trying to get a following, he's not trying to get a movement. He's not even saying he's a body worth seeing or looking at or anything else. And if you looked at him, you'd probably be horrified because he had this unkempt, uncut hair and a beard that wasn't taken care of. And he probably didn't smell very good. And his clothes didn't smell very good. But he was obedient. And it wasn't about his body and how it looked and how it smelled and how attractive he was or how articulate he was and how handsome he was. It was simply a voice of one with a message crying out, describing an emotional intensity out in the middle of nowhere, not in the middle of the city, not in the middle of all the education, not in the middle of all the religiosity, if that's the right word, just out in the wilderness being obedient. And the people came to him. So he says, I'm not any of this thing. I'm just a guy with a voice saying what God told me to say. So then you ask, well, what exactly was he saying? And this is kind of cool because he says in the very next sentence, he was saying, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, what he's quoting from is Isaiah 40, verse 3. And that's a really important verse because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John discuss that exact verse in connection to Jesus Christ. John, the gospel writer, does it most explicitly of everybody through the testimony of John the Baptist because the first 39 verses of Isaiah are about how horrible God's chosen people have been historically in response to the word of God. Verse 40 is the transition into the lessons on the coming Messiah. And verse 3 has a passage about making straight the way of the Lord, which is a Jewish way of saying, prepare, the king is coming. Because the reference to make straight the way of the Lord is the way you would make a road straight if the king was coming to see you. You didn't want the king to have to zigzag around rocks. You didn't want the king to have to zigzag around trees because all that movement, all that motion sickness made the king on his horse or the king in his carriage kind of motion sick as he was trying to zigzag around all the things. So if the king was coming, you would take out the stumps, you would cut down the trees, you would remove the rocks so that the king's path was straight and smooth. And so from antiquity, if the king was coming, you would make the path straight so the king would be welcome. And when you say make the path straight, you're basically proclaiming prepare because the king is coming. That's what Isaiah meant when he said that. That's what John the Baptist meant when he said it. So when John the Baptist says, make straight the way of the Lord, he's basically saying the king, your Messiah, 
is coming. So it's a great little message, once again, showing just how deep and how precise his theology was. Now, this gets really fascinating because it says in verse 25, so they ask him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophets? Those are the three questions we just looked at. John says, I baptize with water. And then I jump down to verse 31 and it says, I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. Now you read that and you go, okay, but you don't get it because there's nothing in that verse that would explain why he baptizing meant anything. Let me give you just a couple of minute history on the idea of Jewish baptism. In Judaism, it's called the mikvah. And it goes way back to the days of Moses in terms of ceremonial cleaning. They had six different recognized ways of having a ritualistic or a ceremonial cleansing. They could have cleansing and did have cleansing in the old tabernacle and in the temple that was just a wash basin where you'd wash your hands. They had ritualistic washing of uh, a way of doing the mikvah of washing your feet. They had ways of doing the mikvah of washing an infant as they came into the world. They had ways of washing that became a little bit more pronounced, where if you were a priest working in the temple, you would step into a pool and you would step out of a pool before you went into the temple complex. Uh, the Essenes, the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they practiced the mikvah. They would go do this ritualistic cleansing where they would step into a pool and step out of a pool uh, until it completely covered their head twice a day, every single day, no matter how cold or how hot it was. And the greatest form, the, the purest form of ritualistic cleaning would be involving what they called living water, which was a running stream, a river like the Jordan River or the Mediterranean or something that was moving the Sea of Galilee if you went up north. And they would walk into a moving body of water and then step back out. And that was the purest form of cleansing. So if you did something really bad, if you really felt like you were struggling with something and you needed to cleanse yourself before you went to Jerusalem, before you went to the temple, you would then step into a pool of living water, of running water, and then step back out again. The difference is the mikvah at the time of Jesus was always done by the person. They would do it to themselves. They would wash their hands. That was the mikvah. They would wash their own feet. They would step into the pool or step out of the pool. They would step into the living water, out of the living water, but it was of themselves. And it was consistent with Jewish theology then and there that your salvation was what you did. It was all about keeping the Mosaic law. And so part of the Mosaic law was your own ritualistic cleansing. And you would wash your hands, wash your feet, or step into the pool or step into the living water, the running water. And that was the mikvah. John is different. He was the first guy that sent the audiovisual message, somebody else has to clean you. Somebody else has to do the mikvah. Somebody else has to be the one that performs your ritualistic cleansing. So it's an audiovisual picture of the disciple John, the apostle John, uh, sorry, John the Baptist. Uh, described by the Apostle John doing this immersive baptism, this ritualistic cleansing where somebody says, I need to be cleansed. I need to have my sins covered. I need to be made right. And John the Baptist for the first time was baptizing. That's why it created a stir because everybody else that did the mikvah would just do it themselves. John the Baptist was saying, 
You need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would be doing the baptism, giving an audiovisual picture that somebody else has got to do your cleansing. Somebody else has got to cover your sins. And it was a great picture. And when John says, I'm just baptizing with water, the heads would have been spinning of everybody around him, but it was a great picture. The people weren't trying to cleanse themselves. They were coming to John saying, would you please cleanse me? And John just kept pointing to the Messiah. He was the voice in the wilderness pointing not to him as cleansing their sins, but of the coming Messiah. And so it was a picture that fell right in words with the words uh, that he was speaking. He says in verse 25, or sorry, verse 27, uh, after he describes his baptism, he says, he's the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. So this is another picture of his view of who Jesus is. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Now, you and I would look at that and you would say, okay, that's a pretty lowly position. But if you understand the Jewish idea of removing sandals, it's even more significant. Let me tell you some history. The way the Jews dealt with bankruptcy was not with bankruptcy courts like we have today. It was with, with voluntary servitude. If you owed a lot of money and you couldn't pay it, you could be discharged of your debt if you volunteered to be a slave for your debt holder for seven years. And if you put yourself in that position to discharge a very large debt, the owner of you for those seven years of voluntary servitude could make you do anything they wanted with one exception. Under Jewish law, you could not take their shoes off and you could not be made to wash their feet. So a master could not tell you, take my sandals off and wash my feet. The reason why was under Jewish law, because you were walking through manure-laden streets and dirty, dusty streets from the cattle and the sheep and everything else they had, if you touch someone else's feet, you were ceremonially defiled. You could not enter the temple. You could not give sacrifices until they went through this ritualistic cleansing process because you touched someone else's feet. So the Jewish leaders passed a law saying a master cannot have his slave wash his feet. The master must wash his own feet and then go through their own cleansing process, but you can't make somebody else do it to make you more clean or make you more holy. So it would not allow a master to defile their servant. John the Baptist says, I am so lowly. I'm not even worthy of untying his sandal. It's the description that would be the lowest of the low of the low. Because if a master made a slave untie his sandal or a slave wanted to untie his master's sandal, It'd be automatic defilement and the lowest of low. John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the low. A phenomenal picture of his humility, a phenomenal picture of his theology, and it gives us a picture of how he correctly understands who the Messiah is. Now, it really gets cool in the very end of verse 39 up through 34. Verse 29, sorry, sorry, it's 39, I said 29. And the very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God. Now, this is a great little insight, once again, on the depth of his theology, because once again, I told you earlier, God's time with him in the wilderness let him connect the dots from the Old and the New Testament. The Jews knew all about the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the Jewish label for the Passover lamb. Every family had one. Every family had a Lamb of God. They would raise it. They would get to know it. 
It meant certain qualifications. It was set aside from the others. It had to go through all these different steps. And that was known as the Lamb of God. And at the Passover, it would be sacrificed for the sins of the family. John, the Baptist, draws the connection to the Messiah. He sees a man coming that nobody else knows. John the Baptist doesn't even know him, but the Holy Spirit responds in his heart who he is. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And he draws the connection, the Passover lamb is a human being. The Passover lamb is a man in our midst. Now, everybody around him would have been completely confused or thought he was out of his mind. But writing 60, 70 years later, the Apostle John, realizing how profound John the Baptist's theological insight was, says, this guy nailed it. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Passover lamb. And so that's the reason he's given us this testimony, this witness of John the Baptist, because of the depth of the insight before any other human being on the planet Earth connecting the Passover lamb going back to Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt that they had been sacrificed and had in all of their homes for the next 1,800 years. John the Baptist says that symbol of your salvation, that symbol of the, the, the forgiveness of your sins is embodied in one man, and I'm pointing at him. Here he comes. And then he takes one more step, and he says, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is fascinating because the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, to every Jewish person hearing him was a single lamb for their single family. The Passover lamb was intended for one person, the father, or that person's family. It was good for the wife and for the minor children of the children that were still living at home and not married. It took away the sins of the family. John the Baptist points and says that human being is the lamb of God. That's the Passover lamb. And he takes away the sins of the entire world. Now, don't misunderstand John the Apostle or John the Baptist. This is not preaching universalism. This is not preaching that Jesus Christ died and everybody gets to go to heaven no matter what their past looks like. That's a different lesson for a different time, but that is not Bible. There's not a word in the New Testament that supports that. What it's saying is that when the Lamb of God is God himself becoming a man to die as a man as the Passover Lamb, that is so significant that it is efficacious enough for the entire world. It doesn't mean the entire world will believe. It doesn't mean the entire world will have faith, but it means it is such a profound moment in human history. It is such a profound moment in God's divine creation that when God becomes man, becomes man and becomes obedient to the point of being the sacrificial lamb, that is such a sacrifice. That is so profound. That is so jaw-droppingly awesome that it is profound enough, it is efficacious enough to have the power to save every human being in the entire world who has ever lived or whoever will live who believes in who Jesus Christ is. He didn't go into great depth, he didn't elaborate, but it is profound in its significance, and that's why John describes who it is. Now, notice how he ends and how we're going to end the lesson in verses 32 and 34. He describes more of his witness or his testimony, and it says John testified, and he's describing now the baptism of his baptism of Jesus. So he says, there's the Passover lamb that came to save the sins of the world. Uh, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him, on Jesus. 
John the Baptist says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then I highlighted for you verse 34, I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. Two little cool things are happening here. Number one, John the Baptist did not know Jesus, hadn't met him. He spent more than a decade out in the desert with God, just one-on-one with the Holy Spirit, communicating from God the Father about connecting the dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He knew more than anybody, but until the baptism, had not met Jesus. He was baptizing probably dozens, if not hundreds a day, And here comes a Jewish guy to him that was just as unrecognizable as everybody else. He wasn't glowing, didn't have a halo on his head, didn't have a unique haircut, didn't have unique clothing. He was just a guy that looked like everybody else, but there was one signal. The Holy Spirit moved in his heart and said, there, that's the man. He is the Passover lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. And the verification of that was the dove coming down from heaven. Now, remember why John's doing this. John the Apostle writer is trying to prove who Jesus is. Remember what the Jewish law said in terms of court testimony. Could convicting, convincing testimony in a court of law be done by one witness? No. Jewish law said one witness is not enough to establish something in a court of law as a matter of law. You must have two or preferably three witnesses before a fact will be legally confirmed as a true fact. So John says, I have seen and testified that he is the son of God. Messianic term for he's God. He is man and he is God. That's powerful by himself. That's answering John the Apostle's uh, question of who is Jesus Christ. But notice what God does. Because it's not just one person testifying and saying, you need to believe me. There's a second person who testifies, and that's the Holy Spirit, who comes down in the form of a dove and lights on him and moves in John the Baptist's heart to say he's the one that baptized with the Holy Spirit. But then remember the profoundness of the Synoptic Gospels and what the Synoptic Gospels say about what happens next. Remember, after Jesus is baptized, the dove comes down, there's a third witness. Remember who it is? The third witness is God the Father himself, the voice from heaven. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what he says? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We've got three witnesses in the gospel. John the Baptist saying, I have seen and testified that this man that I just baptized is the son of God. Number one, Holy Spirit comes down and lands on him. Number two, this is God's chosen. Number three, God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Three witnesses confirmed as a matter of law as a matter of fact, in any court of Jewish law. It's absolutely profound. Let me give you some explanation, uh, some application. The application, number one, is more insight on who is Jesus Christ. You now understand exactly why the Apostle John takes the time to describe John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. It's not about his ministry. It's not about his message. It's about identifying the depth of who is Jesus Christ. 
He is the Passover lamb. He's come to save the sins of the world. He's not worthy to tie his shoestrings uh, to deal with his defiled feet uh, or anyone's defiled feet. It's just a, he's not worthy of that. It's just an amazing perspective on who is Jesus Christ. But I want to end by jumping ahead into John chapter 3 because it so perfectly ties up this message. I'm going to get to John chapter 3 here in a couple of weeks, but I just thought this was the perfect way to end because John chapter 3 tells us what we ought to do for the rest of Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday until we're back together again. John chapter 3, verses 30. John the Baptist says, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Folks, that's my challenge for you. That's my message for you. That for all of us, as we leave here today, as you stop listening today, as you go about and do the rest of your Sunday or whatever day you're listening to this, or as you live Monday through the rest of the week, as you look at your work, as you look at your spouse, as you look at your kids or grandkids, as you look at your friends and other family members, as you look at all the stress that you're under, the problems you're having, the burdens you're carrying, the health issues, the fears that you've got about what's going to happen on Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday this week or any other day, the answer to all those issues, every relationship, every financial issue, every vocational issue, every ministry issue, today, tomorrow, the next day, say to yourself, he must increase, but I must decrease. If you do that, you've got the picture of how, the, how John the baptizer, how John the Baptist would look at that particular situation, and you can understand why John the Apostle recorded it for all of us to understand, and that's the importance of John the Baptist. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad you're here. Join with me in closing in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study this amazing man, this man of humility, this man of great theological depth that was so simplistic in his message that even a child could understand, that was so simplistic in his audiovisual baptism that somebody else has got to cleanse our souls, that was so simplistic in what he did and how he dressed and what he considered was important that it ought to motivate us towards a position of humility. We thank you for John and his gospel. We thank you for John the Baptist that we have recorded in this gospel. And we just pray that it would motivate us, it would enlighten us, it would deepen our understanding of this critically important question of who is Jesus Christ so that we can use our words and not just our lifestyle, but our words to tell people who Jesus Christ is. Give us the opportunities, give us the power, through you. Give us the words through you to make all these things happen. And we thank you so much. Bring us back to we're together again here next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I look forward to seeing everyone in person next week. Thanks for your patience with me while I had to be gone this week. Thank you all. Love you. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.